Hi everybody, this is Ken from Hacker Public Radio. In today's interview, I'm going to be talking to Jeremy Allison from the Samba Project, recorded at FOSTEM 2014. For some reason, I was unable to recover a audio track from my Zoom H2 for this interview, so I'm forced to use the audio from the backup device, which is why you'll hear some audio artifacts in this interview. But as we say here at HPR, any recording is better than no recording, so I uh, beg your apologies for the poor audio and apologies to Jeremy, uh, but I think you'll all agree that it is a very, very interesting interview. So sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Google Summer of Code booth, I heard a voice that I recognised and it was Jeremy Allison. Hi. Hi Jeremy, why should I have known you immediately when I walked past the booth? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> I think you've been involved in several projects. Uh, you've been, um, ho- you're a host of, for the podcasting listeners here, you've been a host of um, uh, This Week in Tech on the Twit Network for a while, but you've also been a developer of one of the developers on the Samba project. What else, how many other equivalents do you have in uh, Well, so, sorry, you wanted me to talk about Samba or? No, I, just I mean, about you. Uh, oh, um, well, I, I've been doing, I've been doing um, free software for a very long time. Um, and um, I first started uh, sending in um, hacks to GCC uh, for yep. the Sun 3865, if anyone remembers that. Um, my very first patch was sent to Richard Stallman and got rejected. Oh, very good. <laughs> yes, it was great. It was like, I, I say, it's like that onion, that wonderful onion headline, crippled child gets answer from God. No, says God. You know, it, was kind of, <laughs> it was kind of like that, you know. Get, but I got, I got an email back from God, Richard Stallman, you know. Uh, anyway, so yeah, I've been working on, I've been working on uh, various open source projects. Uh, uh, how did you even, st- how did you start off? You, you were a kid somewhere in England, I'm guessing? Um, well, uh, I'm old. Um, <laughs> okay, that makes two of us. <laughs> back when I was a kid, there weren't any computers, well, there were computers, but there was a sharp Z something, it was Z8, ZX80 base, uh, Z80 base was uh, Zilog Z80 based machine and it was a sharp something 80 that was the only computer in the school there was one yeah so I didn't really get into um, computing at all until my third or fourth year at university really where did you go to uh, university I went to Sheffield oh. um, did physics and astronomy um, and then I, uh, I I took a PhD doing geophysics which yeah. I was terribly bored with and um, the guy who um, got me to do the PhD, what he really wanted was someone to fix his mass spectrometer control software. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I was good at that. <laughs> I was terrible at the, the geophysics. I was terribly, I wasn't interested in it at all. Um, but I was good at fixing the mass spectrometer control software, which was based on uh, PDP-11. Okay. And um, 
So had you any formal training in computer programming up until that point, or was this all self-taught? I had an Acorn Atom with 2K of RAM, okay. which I took up to 12K of RAM, and then I started writing myself things like a word processor and little 3D graphic stuff. And the, the Acorn Atom, if, if you remember, uh, is, is this for English people, right? No, all, all around the world. So oh, so p not... Yeah, the mice. They, they There'll may be a link to that in the show notes, don't worry. They, but people may remember, um, anyone who worked on the Acorn Atom, it had um, the most wonderful 6502 assembly language manual. Uh, and so, you know, everyone at the time was learning BASIC, which I was, and then I ran into this section in the middle of the manual, which was, it was, it was like, oh, there's, there's a weird, this is this weird stuff. And, and I began to realize that this was what the computer actually used. And so I got really, really interested in that. Um, and, and that weird stuff was assembly? And that was 6502 assembly language. Yeah. Uh, and so I started to learn assembly language and then did a, as a side project while I was doing my PhD. I worked with one of the university technicians and he was, he was building control, mass spectrometer control boards based on the 6800 um, with, the, uh, with the assembler that we used to load in off paper tape. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so I, I wrote the control software for that, which, which actually taught me a great deal because when you're writing control software for a board, um, if, you, if you make any mistakes whatsoever, the board hangs or, or just fails, or, and there's, there's nobody to debug it. You just have to, you know, this is an independent board. You just have to look at the code and work out where you'd screwed up. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that's probably the only time I wrote perfect software because at the end of it, it it just works and there were you know we couldn't find any bugs in it it was very simple yeah, yeah as maybe yeah <laughs> yeah but it was it was it was working software so that that's how i started and then after three years doing my phd i ran away and joined a software house um so which one who, who was that um that that was something called kuma computing who wrote programs for the atari st um now i had gotten uh if you see my interview with linus torvalds he and I both had a machine called a Sinclair Well, yep. which was based on a 6808 processor, 8-bit version of the 68000. Uh, I, I love the interview, actually, because he and I were stuck in Sao Paulo. Well, not stuck. We, we'd gone to Sao Paulo Zoo to an Escape a Linux event. And, and I, I basically said, I will accompany you to the zoo only if you do me this interview. And I, I knew I wanted to ask him about the Sinclair QL. Uh, and it was great. The YouTube comment, the comments on the YouTube were kind of like, Wow, I've never seen an interview with Linus that's so boring before. <laughs> it, was, it was like, it was like, screw you guys. You know, yeah. I, I, I'm going to do an interview with Linus, and everyone asked him about how he changed the world and all that shit. I'm going to ask him about the Sinclair QL because that's what I like. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I really enjoyed the interview, but I don't think anyone else did. I did actually. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> so I, I, I'd gotten. Um, I actually wrote, um, I, I wanted a compiler on the Sinclair QL, so i gotten the Atari, uh, the, the Sinclair QL operating system, written by Tony Tebby, kudos, it's a beautiful, beautiful piece of work. I know we're going into nope. old computer arcania here, but it really was a nice piece of work. And the Atari ST ran something called uh, STDOS, which was a piece of shit. <laughs> it was the port of MS-DOS. Uh, on, on the 68000, and it was horrible. But it was simple enough that the Sinclair QL could actually emulate that OS. Right. So what I did was I essentially wrote 
an Atari ST emulator because there were like five or ten system calls. You know, open a file, read, write, change directory, this kind of thing. So I actually wrote a simpler QL emulator on top of QDOS um, uh, in assembly language. Uh, and then I could run the Metacomco C compiler, which was sold for the ST, but not for the QL. So at that point, I had a working compiler, and, and so I, I needed a linker, so I wrote myself a linker. <laughs> this is a, lo uh, this I, I a long, it. long time ago. Uh, and that's kind of how I got started. Uh, you know, the, uh, and in, in those days, the ideas of proprietary, I mean, there was proprietary software, but nobody paid any attention to it. I mean, ev everyone was pirating games and cracking them, and I, I moved on to the BBC Micro, uh, which was a bit more robust, you know, and... and Basically, I got my start pirating games. I, I would I would write cracks for various games, uh, and the funny thing was, the only game I ever played was Elite, because most of the other games, I, I, I got more enjoyment out of cracking the copy protection on them than I did playing the game. Um, did you ever get into trouble for any of that? Oh God, no. I mean, this is you know. It, it wasn't like I was doing a mass distribution network. There was no internet or anything. This was something I was doing, kind of in my own home for the enjoyment of it. Yeah. I, I, I had a an awesome seventy five slash twelve hundred board modem. <laughs> it would have taken a long time to upload anything. What was that? BT, BT had some kind of bulletin board system. I can't remember the name of now. But I, I was a member of that, and that was that was. Uh, um, you know, everything was was based around things like CFAX, and, and that was a that, yeah. that was a level of graphics that we had. Um, anyway, I was, I was, so that's that's kind of how I got started, uh, and then I, I moved to Kuma Computers, and I, I was writing um, software on the Atari ST, and I I wrote the database called KBase, yeah. and this was uh, so it was the first time I'd implemented B trees, um, and uh, and the gem interface. Um, and, and came across the gem interface, which was really nice actually. Yeah. I, it, if you compare that to early Windows, uh, it, it was a way superior, yeah, yeah. way, way superior. Really nice piece of work. It, it had all these objects inside it. It was my first introduction to object-oriented programming um, with, you know, um, in, with callable methods inside objects. And it, it was just a really nice, it's all in C. Was uh, that already in place? That back when the gem processor were... Uh, it, that was on the Atari ST. Yeah, yeah. And then, then they had a version for the PC, but because the PC was on the 8086, or the the 8088, they had those bloody 64K segments, which right. were just... I mean, I was familiar with them because that's how the PDP worked. Uh, and in fact, the bug I fixed on the original mass spectrometer was the fact that an interrupt handler had been placed by the linker inside a segment that was swapped out when the interrupt fired. Right. Okay, yes. <laughs> Which didn't help. <laughs> so so I, I actually my, my main fix for that mass spectrometer control software was was telling the linker to move the interrupt handler into the global segment that was always loaded. Um, so uh, yeah there was a version of gem that ran on top of um, uh, the uh, the IBM PC and it was shit I mean I don't know whether you remember C at that time uh, you would have things like char fast uh, char star far pointers you know yeah. uh, so there were near and far pointers whether they pointed within segment or not and having been used to the 68,000 I thought 
I just can't be arsed with this. This is the most stupid thing I've ever run across. So I, I decided to stay on the Atari ST and, and let someone else who was actually a way superior programmer to me port the, my program to the PC because I just didn't want to deal with the segmentation. And so I kind of stayed, in the, um, stayed on the 68000, which was a flat memory space. Uh, up until I, I moved to a company that was uh, that was actually uh, writing software on Sun machines, the, the early Sun, I think Sun twos or threes at the time, uh, and again that was a 68,000, uh, 68, um with a memory management chip. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, and so. I, oh, I also ran into the Amiga. Um, you probably have a bunch of Amiga fans on your show. I hate the Amiga. I always came to blows. Those Amiga guys, they're weird, goddammit. I always came to blows with this Amiga guy. Was, I, I mean, you know, you criticise their... It, it's like you're calling their child ugly, right? So, why do you hate the Amiga? <laughs> it was shit. I mean, it, 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 it was this Tripos-based operating system. And it was just it was just badly written, uh, unusable crap. Um, so we had to port the Kuma application suite to the Amiga. And so there was one real sort of hardcore Amiga guy who was saying, "Oh, I'm gonna, you know, let's port all these things properly." And I looked at it, and I, I I looked at the ST, and I thought, you know what? Why don't we just write? rewrite gem on top of the Amiga interface and then we can port everything as is. So we had a race. So he decided to port the application to native uh, and uh, I just rewrote gem and I won by about six months. <laughs> and we had a whole suite. So 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 K base was done and the, and then then the K word guy and the K spread guy said well, we're, we're going to use this gem emulation because it's quick and we don't have to change anything. Um, so we ended up uh, yeah, we ended up having would it run as fast then? Sorry? Would it run as fast then? Yeah, it was absolutely fine. I mean, I mean, um, the only problem is it didn't look native. It looked a little weird to yeah. Amigaites, you know. But I hated that machine. Um, this, this was. Remember, everything was running on floppies, and we so we got our first hard drives to the Amiga, and you know it had those, you know, hinky dinky doodle chips or whatever they call it. The, <laughs> I'm, I'm, you're going to get angry letters from all these Amiga fans. <laughs> Screw them! I don't care. Um, so I had all these so-called flashy graphics chips, and I never forget running into a bug where if you dragged and dropped an icon, because you know there's this whole sort of oh drag and drop wimpy interface stuff. So if you dragged and dropped an icon, it was using the DMA engine to do. Um, the blitting of the uh, graphics uh, of the icon um, as you were dragging it across the screen. If the disk drive, um, if the disk drive interrupt fired at the same time, it would smear a copy of the blit of your icon all over the disk drive because it was using the same chip. <laughs> was, oh my God. I know it was. You know, we, we we kept on losing disk drives. We kept on trashing hard disk drives until we figured out. Oh, while you're doing that, turn off the interrupt. Just anyway, okay. I hated that machine. So fair enough. Uh, yes. Anyway, these are, we're talking very early days now. And then, how how did you move on from that? Uh, oh, I I went through various companies in England until I ended up at Sun. Yep. Microsystems. Now, Sun was interesting because it had the first. So, I'd worked on Sun machines at Manchester University and a bunch of other places. Um, but I, I moved to Sun because it, 
you actually then had access to the real Unix source. It's like, okay, this is the real thing. Because remember, remember kids, no open source back in those days. Everything was closed up, everything was proprietary. You wanted to learn how a Unix worked, you had to go and work for a Unix selling company. It was the only way you could see the source. But this is after Richard Stallman sent the email to uh, HP about the printer? Um, yes. So. We were using GCC back in the Puma Computers days, so the, yeah. the, um, the GNU project had, uh, had, already been had already been kicked off at that point. But there was no there was no operating system, so all the operating systems were proprietary. You had to pick your poison, yeah. you know. And, and my poison was was Sun. Yeah. Um, and and so you know, I, I worked at Sun, and that's how I ended up in the US. Uh, Sun brought me over. Uh, they shipped a version of um, what they called Open Windows. They were moving to X, uh, and they had a new windowing system called Open Windows. And uh, internally, <laughs> I'm sure they won't mind they've been bought by Oracle now, no one cares. Internally, we used to call it Broken Windows 3. <laughs> it was so full of bugs. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I got temporarily uh, assigned to uh, Sun's corporate technical escalations, because uh, I... Working on the hotline, which is um, what they call the hard-drinking, hard-partying engineers who used to be at the front line of yeah. when customers called in, um, we were at the front line of taking questions. Um, so that was the most technical job that you could do in the UK because there was no development work done in right. the UK. Yeah. So um, uh, to help broaden my experience, my manager said, OK, spend a couple of weeks in the US and work for corporate te technical escalations and work out how the bugs get fixed. So I went there and, you know, within a day of being in California, I thought, I don't want to go home. <laughs> it was, was mid-December. Yeah. It was mid-December and, you know, it was snow and hail. It was Sheffield, man. And, you know, yeah. I... City of Steel. Well, just the miserable weather. And then I'm out in California. I'm driving up 280 and it's, it's, it's 70 degrees. The sun shining, you know, and... And, you know, I, I, I see all these people on the Sun campus and having little carol concerts. And I'm thinking, I don't want to go home. <laughs> so, so I worked pretty hard to show, look, I can fix these bugs. But only from California. <laughs> uh, well, I fixed a bunch of bugs. And, and so what happened was um, the TT manager said, oh, can we have him, please? And, uh, and very, I, I, my manager was great because uh, they said, can we have him for six months? And my manager said, no, you can either have him if you hire him permanently or, you know, uh, or you can't have him at all. So they did. They hired me permanently and I moved over. Um, how, how did you find the move? So um, did, did you have any family to bring? Or? Um, yeah, I, I came over um, with my ex-wife. Um, and that, that was rough because she couldn't work until I got a green card. Yeah. Um, first few years were culture shock because yeah. uh, the US is different yeah. the US is a different place what did you find what did you find most difficult uh, I remember being shocked that they kill people first first time there was an execution at San Quentin yeah. I'm like oh my god it's a bunch of savages um, you know I still kind of have that opinion I, I still don't think the death penalty is a great idea uh, and, and another time it, it's hard to because I've been there now for about 20 years uh, it's hard to describe, but I remember being in, uh, I was about to say parking lot, <laughs> Cause, cause my, but now a car park, I, I remember being in a car and looking around and all of a sudden things felt foreign and there's no other way to describe it. It was, a, it was the, the cars were different, the, you know, the spaces were five times Bigger. the spaces that you get in the UK and, and it just, 
all of a sudden, for about 20 minutes, I felt completely out of place, completely foreign. That has so much faded now. Uh, yeah. It's home. Um, so anyway. Um, yeah, I've moved a few times. So I don't know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. If, if you if you haven't moved, you don't know what it's like. But all of a sudden, especially if you move to a, a foreign country, there's this immense feeling of dislocation that you get until you build a new home. Really. Yeah. Okay, and you got your green card, obviously. Um, yes, that was uh, fun and adventure, but let's not go into that. There's uh, lo- lo- lots of shenanigans in Sun, which is uh, a very interesting company. Uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll not go into those. Anyway, I got my green card, uh, ended up moving to uh, a startup called Vantive, uh, who was doing customer support software, and I, I was there, ended up being. I started out as their porting engineer and ended up being the network architect. <clears throat> and that was really where, well, so that was where Samba started. Um, and and uh, in case people don't know what Samba is, because these days everyone uses the web and nobody uses local storage, but Samba uh, is a file print and authentication server that allows Unix and Linux machines to appear as um, storage nodes or, or printing nodes or whatever or Active Directory now uh, on a local network. So, you know, wh- when you're watching your movies or, or music or whatever on your Myth TV, oftentimes what it's serving off is, is a Samba server. You buy these little boxes yep. from Netgear or whatever, and they've got Samba inside, and they, you know, they serve your storage out to Windows boxes. And, and so at the time I was working at Vantive, I mean, I, I have mentioned this many times before, uh, but I was working with PCNFS, which was a Sun product, which was horrible. And for my sins, one of the last jobs I had to do at Sun was help maintain that thing. So I knew how bad it was. Um, and, uh, and, and so I'd started to write something in C++, of course, which is the only true language. Uh, not that I believe that now. Uh, but at the time, I started to write something in C++. And then Tridge, Andrew Tridgel, published the very first version of Samba. And it worked. Uh, and so I immediately ditched my code and just started sending in patches. So... You know, so why were you, were you supposed to be producing something commercially to do yes. the same thing? Uh, well, no, I was actually supposed to be porting Vantage software onto um, uh, Windows, actually Windows NT, yeah. and which I did do. But the problem was all the client, all the client code was on Windows, all the server code was on Unix, and it shared a lot of code. And right now they were using PCNFS, which had 8.3 file names, if yeah. you remember, yeah. uh, and we needed something that worked better to share the code, and so. Essentially, I stole time from my employer, <laughs> like you did at the time, and probably still do, people, um, to make Samba work. And every time I, I got it to the point where we could replace PCNFS with it, and at that point, Vantage was really happy yeah. because um, they they stopped having to buy PCNFS licenses. They replaced all their PCN their NFS servers with Samba running on Sunoff boxes. And I saved the company a bunch of money, so they didn't really care that I was sending this code out because it wasn't anything that they were interested in. Yeah, um, and I, I knew the GPL. I, you know, I was familiar with the GPL from the work I'd done at Sun on the 386i um, GCC work, and I'd, I'd read the GPL for the very first time when I was at Kuma back when we started using GCC, and you know. Coming from Sheffield, I read it and I, oh, I get this. This is socialism. Well, you know, I mean, it, it, it's not a dirty word. I know it's a dirty word in the US, but it's not really a dirty word, you know. 
Um, I, I just recognised it was oh, okay. You know, this is what you learn in, in these days. I say kindergarten, um, but it's you know you, uh, it, it, it's sharing. You know you you learn to share, and that's what the GPL is. So, and when did you first meet uh, Trudy? God, I, I don't think I met him till about five or six years after we'd started working together. Because um, he's in Australia, was a PhD student, and I was in California. And uh, I, yeah, I actually think the first time we met was on the Microsoft campus. Um, probably, <laughs> okay, we're probably. Uh, let's. So you were at. Uh, you were at. Vant- Vantiv. Vantiv. Yes. And uh, what <clears throat> happened from there? This is like your just audio resume, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that's what it, it's turning into. So I. Um, what happened was I. I did a significant piece of engineering work at Vantiv. I uh, added compression and multi-thread support into Sun's RPC library. We were using Sun's ONC RPC as a remote procedure call library to make Vantiv's product work. Uh-huh. And so I put a... Uh, while my mum was ill, I actually remember, I took a laptop over there and I was sort of coding by the side of a hospital bed. Uh, and I, 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 got, I got this working and it... You know, it was a factor of 10 improvement in the network uh, traffic, as in less. And uh, so I went back and presented it. And uh, I remember them saying, well, that's great, but, you know, we're already selling more of the product than we can handle right now. So we'll keep this in reserve um, for when we need a big boost, you know, for our our, our product cycle. Of course, it never got released. (laughs) And that code died. Uh, and at that point, I thought, you know what, I'm, I've had it with proprietary software. Uh, and that actually, I think, is the last proprietary software I ever worked on. Um, so I went out at the time and, you know, I looked for another job. And the only people who were doing open source software, well, free software at the time, it became open source later, was Cygnus. Uh, yeah. Mike, Mike Team and Cygnus. And so I, I went to work for them. Where were they in the US? Uh, they were in Mountain View, um, no. Landings Drive. In, in fact, a walking distance from the Google building where yeah. I work. It goes around, comes around. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Mozilla is probably occupying the same offices these yeah. days. Uh, I, I spent a lot of my life up and down um, Shoreline Boulevard uh, on Mountain View off 101. Uh, anyway, um, so on the Vantive building is now, run, is now owned by Ignite, um, <laughs> one of the cloud vendors, who is a Samba user. Anyway, um, so uh, yes, I, I went to Cygnus, and this is the funny thing. After I'd started working on it, what I was doing was I was because I was very familiar with Windows. I was one of the few people who had a lot of experience with both Unix and I'm Windows NT. Because um, I'd, I'd sidestepped the lower versions of Windows until they came out with a Windows that had no segments. <laughs> this was the first version of Windows that was like Unix, right? Oh, right oh okay, I can I can work with this, and. Um, so I, I was um, working at Cygnus on porting Kerberos to Windows NT. This was yeah. back before the announcement of RH, which had native Kerberos. Yeah. And um, a little known but dirty secret at the time is that Cygnus was actually experimenting with doing proprietary software. Oh, <laughs> and right. I found that my Kerberos was going to be the first proprietary software product oh, from Cygnus. Dear. So I was like, oh, great. Um, so so the, way, the way I worked on that was really interesting. Um, I, I started to look at porting MIT Kerberos to Windows NT, and Cygnus had this technology that was written um, mostly by this god of a programmer called Steve Chamberlain. Never met him, never met the guy. 
had he wrote some of the cleverest code I've ever seen in my life just genius stuff anyway so so he had this thing called Sigwin 32 yeah and it was basically a POSIX emulation library that sat on top of Windows and so I thought well I've done Unix to Windows ports I know how to do that let's do something different let's take Kerberos and try and compile it using Sigwin 32 and when it fails, when the compile or the you know, execution fails, let's fix Sigwin32 and leave Kerberos alone. So actually what I ended up spending most of my time at Cygnus on was doing Sigwin32. Because you knew uh, you knew Kerberos was going to work, anyway. Well, I mean, I, I knew that, basically I knew that once we had gotten Sigwin32 to the stage where Kerberos just natively worked, we had a technology that was much more powerful than just doing a native port of Kerberos. Yes. Because at that point, you can then take any other Unix software that you need to run, you know. And, and remember, we're thinking about Windows as a server operating system at the time. It's like, okay, then we can, it's like shelling peas. Once we've got a working Sigmin32, we can take any yeah, working yeah, Unix yeah. server code and make it work. So, so yeah. And, and so I kind of took a vacation from Samba there for, uh, for about a year or so. Um, and how do you find uh, Sigmund now uh, as a project? Um, so I, I haven't worked on it for a very, very long time. Uh, it's a lot more sophisticated now. It does a lot more. Um, you know, if I have to use Windows, and the dirty secret of the Samba team is none of us really uses Windows much anymore. If I have to use Windows, putting Sigwin on it is one of the first things I do. Because yeah. it gives you a working Unix environment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but these days, most you, nobody needs to use Windows anymore. Nobody needs Windows. I mean, you know, if you want a nice desktop, just install Ubuntu. <laughs> yeah. It works, you know, it, it's, it's nice. It does whatever Windowsy things you might want it to do. Um, yeah, um, so uh, where was I? You're, uh, you're taking some time off to do Sigma. Oh, yeah, so, so then Microsoft announced Active Directory was going to be Kerberos based, and the bottom dropped out of the Kerberos market on <laughs> Windows. Very quickly, yeah. <laughs> so, so at that point, Signals was like, well, what are you going to do? Uh, you know, what you could come work on GCC with all our other contracts. And I was like, oh, God, I don't want to do that again. Um, and at that point, a little company called Whistle um, Communications yep. in San Mateo said, um, how about you come work on Samba for us because we have this great product that needs it, plus we'll give you a 30% pay rise. Because <laughs> Cygnus was cheap. <laughs> a a uh, tradition that I think Red Hat has inherited to this day. Anyway, um, I don't really mean about Red Hat. I, I like Red Hat a lot. Um, but but Cygnus was cheap, uh, and so I. How did Cygnus did Cygnus evolve into Red Hat then? Uh, Red Hat bought Cygnus. Oh okay, yeah. Um, so they, they picked up an incredible number of. of before Google, um, Cygnus had the most talented engineers I've ever worked with. I mean, it had just this. Steve Chamberlain had left by the time I got to Cygnus, but we had Ian Lance Taylor, um, we had Mark Horowitz, we had a bunch of guys who were uh, just genius level coders. Yeah. Um, the, oh, the guy who's doing Ganache, I've forgotten his name. They're just just so many of, so many of sort of the real names, the real Core power behind behind what's called open source. Uh, Cygnus. You know, nurtured and, and, and gave birth to those people. Really okay. did. And you went to Whistle um, then? Yes, went to Whistle. And that was my first paying job to work on Samba. 
uh, and that that was great. You know, I mean, that was when we first put the oplock stuff in. Um, you know, we're, we're oplock, opportunistic locking. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, technical. Well, no, no, carry on. Well. Essentially, it's a way of lying to clients, saying you have sole access to this file, or, and guaranteeing that they can modify, make modifications locally, and then push back onto the server when someone else needs it. There's a bunch of complex work done done on that, uh, and I actually wrote a, a, a column about that called the Startup Bicycle. I don't know if you've ever read it. No. It's one of my favourites, um, where, where I talk about my time at Whistler, and. Um, so a start Whistle was a startup company, and a startup company is like a bicycle. Yeah. And and so the theory behind it is, you know, startups are bicycles, but they're not regular bicycles. They're a penny farthing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. And engineering is the back wheel. <laughs> the uh, little one. What's the big wheel? The big wheel is marketing. <laughs> and, okay. and most people don't understand that. I didn't understand that. I had the choice at the time of, well, I had the choice of joining NetApp, which I turned down, but they wanted proprietary software. But I also had the choice of joining um, Whistle or Cobalt. Yep. Now, Cobalt, I, I looked at Cobalt, and Cobalt was a nice company, but they were basically selling a generic Linux on MIPS. Yeah. Um, and they didn't have any particularly special great technology whistle had everything it had a great idea a wonderful concept Apple UI engineers had the best engine FreeBSD engineering team some of the core FreeBSD t people they even hired Kurt McCusick to work on some of the soft update stuff he did while I was at whistle and Cobalt annihilated us <laughs> so what was the point of whistle then uh, so, so Whistle was had sold this thing called the Interject, which was kind of it was going to be like um, the the HP uh, LaserJet or whatever, but for the internet. Okay. So it was a little box that did file print authentication and was your web server. Yeah. And so you bought this thing via ISP. Oh, what a great idea that was, because ISPs are such great salespeople, right? Yeah. Um, you put it through your ISP, and it would be your miniature web presence for a small company. And it was just a perfect idea. Yeah. And the marketing just was terrible. Um, you know, the marketing person insisted we use Windows NT for our own website, which, of course, all of the reviewers pointed out, and our competition yes. <laughs> was delighted to. Yeah. <laughs> but, but Cobalt had a cool blue plastic it box. Yeah. Do you remember that box? I do, yeah. That, you know, the, 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 we used to turn the lights in the data center right. off just to watch. Just to see it, yeah. <laughs> sad is that? <laughs> no, no, I completely understand. I, you know, the Tide House, big pumping Mountain View. I remember going into the Tide House, and I knew we'd lost when I saw that the Tide House had a cobalt cube, which they were using, you know, I don't know, for something for their website or whatever. They had it mounted like a piece of art yeah. where customers could see it when you walked in. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Crap. <laughs> <laughs> they really get it. And, and, you know, they had all these risque adverts that they used to get criticized for. But, but the marketing around that thing was just... Some bought them for something like... Two billion dollars, and, and then, then just promptly pissed it down the toilet, <laughs> down the tubes. I <laughs> never, I never heard anything about them after that. I thought it would take them the the, the the whole brand and do something with it, but no, it, it was some. Yeah, but well, after <laughs> some bought them. That's what I mean. I th I expected some to continue the brand, and you know, but it just ah, out. you never worked at Sun, did you? <laughs> <laughs> 
Ah, uh, no, no. I mean, I would have loved to have been at, at Cobalt and taken the money. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but no, once Sunbought them, they were doomed. doomed. Uh, just like everything else Sunbought. Um, yeah, so... Uh, so I, when did it become obvious that Cobalt were winning out of a whistle? Um, I don't know. I, I, I wasn't at Whistle that long. Um, probably about six, seven months later. It was, you know, it became obvious that we were just being annihilated in the market. We, we won all these awards, and the awards used to say Whistle, the Whistle Interjet is the nicest box you can't buy. Because you had to buy it through your ISP. Oh, we yeah, wouldn't yeah. sell it directly. And of course, no ISP had any clue how to sell anything. Yeah, uh, so in the end, I, I, I ran away and joined uh, SGI. Yep. Uh, and SGI uh, at the time was exploring doing Windows machines. Uh, what a wonderful idea that was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> with uh, you, you know, I haven't mentioned any names, have I? Because I realise there's a bunch of stories I really shouldn't mention names on. Um, you haven't mentioned any names. In this oh, thank God so, for yeah. that. Okay, uh, yeah. So, so SGI experiment was experimenting with doing Windows uh, clients and burned ooh, about three hundred and fifty million dollars on that little adventure. I think, which promptly pushed the company down the tubes. Um, anyway, so I, I was there to do Samba on Arix um, um, in order to provide the service support for the win new Windows machines that SGI was selling. And I think we did a decent job. Yeah, it was yeah. the first 64-bit port of Samba. It was the first time we moved um, some of the Samba support into the kernel. You know, it was a lot of really good work got done at, uh, when I was at SGI. How, how uh, is the Samba project managed? How do you contribute to it? Uh, <coughs> so it, it, so it, it, it's a bog-standard GPL-based project. And so um, we used to only accept individual copyright. Um, which was quite interesting. <laughs> I remember when I moved to SGI, <clears throat> this was before I got very careful about assigning copyright, etc. Before, before people took this stuff seriously, but I remember going to SGI and the standard Californian employment contract basically says we own every bowel movement. Yeah, yeah. You know. uh, and, and so when they gave me this, I said, oh, well, you're not going to own Samba. So I sort of scribbled on an employment contract and said, except for Samba and crossed a few things out and handed it back. And they said, you can't do that. <laughs> well, Whistle was a much smaller company, see, they never had meetings with this kind of yeah. thing. So I, I, I did that and I sent it, you know, I said, well, I, that's what I'm signing. So I signed it and gave it back. They said, well, the lawyers will get in touch with you about this. And I can't remember, three years later or whenever it was I left, no one had ever yeah. gone back to me. <laughs> one of the advantages of a large company where no one knows what anyone is doing, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so uh, we always had individual copyright. Um, so normally, all you would do to contribute to Samba is just send a patch into the mailing list, um, and someone who has commit access would commit it for you. These days, like most open source projects, we've actually gotten very serious, and, and this is one of the things um, you know I, I learned at Google, because Google, as you know, is a very good engineering um, team. And so these days, to get things into Samba is not so easy. Um, we cannot now accept corporate contributions, and that's actually um, part of moving to GPL version three. All right, let's let, let's go <coughs> come back to that. Okay, uh, because there's a whole story. You were at CGI. How did you? Uh, SGI. SGI. Sorry, SGI. Um, and and uh, then 
you know, my I was working quite closely with a lot of the other Linux companies in the Valley. There was a very strong uh, Linux, um, the, the uh, Linux, uh, God, I can't remember the name of it. The, the Linux Users Club, basically, yeah, in Silicon yeah. Valley. Um, they essentially became VA Linux. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, so, so Chris Dimona, who's now my boss, basically, he kind of said, leave, it, leave SGI, come join us, come join us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As he did with Google, really. And, uh, and so in the end, you know, you know, I'm only human, and I knew VA Linux was going to go public, and I thought, okay. you know, why not? Fair yeah, uh, so I, I went and joined VA Linux. Um, and uh, I made no money whatsoever out of it. No? <laughs> I rode it all the way up, and I rode it all the way back down okay, again yeah. because I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think some people might know that the VL Linux was one of the first Linux companies to go public. And yes, I, I think Red Hat was stuff. first. Red Hat was first, and then VA Linux was next. VA Linux still, I think. Um, Broke the record for the single day biggest IPO game. Yeah, um, you know. And why did it lose <coughs> so much uh, stock price then? Sorry, why did it? Why did it tank? Ah, uh, well, eventually, white tank was because um, what we were doing was we were selling generic boxes. Yeah. Um, and that really wasn't the value. VA, VA Linux, I think, had a great deal of value. Um, and and what what tanked was basically th this one the. But the internet, but first internet bubble burst, you know, in the 2000. Yeah, yeah. And so all the customers went bankrupt eventually. Yeah, all the no. people were buying, you know, thousands and thousands of servers. And the value of VA Linux wasn't really the hardware. Yeah. Um, a, a story I heard was that VA tried to sell its hardware arm to uh, one of the large vendors. And at, at that level, you know, you get 15 minutes in front of a VP to make your case as to why they should buy you. And what they came in and basically said was, we have these great boxes, this great technology. And the VP said, uh, we already have that. Next. What VA had was it had one of the best Linux engineering teams. Yeah. So we had Ted Cho, we had Andrew Tritchell, we, wow. had, we, had, we had all these, you know, uh, what they should have gone in and, and said was, yeah, we have generic boxes that you can replace, but we, we have your Linux kernel team yeah. you know we have your Linux we, we had a network attached storage product that network attached storage product became readiness okay yeah uh, which is now owned by Netgear uh, yeah so I mean you know there were ways to make money out of this thing uh, anyway um, so like I say I wrote it all the way up and down again uh, but VA was a, I, I'm still friends with so many people from VA that was that was such a great ride dude. Yeah. everyone should do that roller coaster ride just just once you know just 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 to see it go up and come back down again. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> and after VA Linux, after VA Linux, where did you go? Um, so I went to HP. Um, yeah. HP wanted to do a printing appliance based on Samba, and so that was when a boatload of the printing work got done. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, that was you know the the uh, years in the wilderness really working on printing. Yeah. Why would they want? A printing project based on Samba. Why did Samba come into it? It was really cheap. You could run. So remember, HP makes money on ink. Yes. More printing, more money. Yes. That's all there is to it. Paperless office, obviously. <laughs> yeah. <you laughs> keep printing those flyers. Um, yeah. So the the idea behind the HP printer appliance, which was very very popular. Um, was you could buy a small rack mounted server. We would run on 
a tiny box with 256 megs of memory. Yeah. Uh, you couldn't even boot Windows NT on that, which was the other only other alternative. Yeah. So we implemented the Windows printing protocols, and you know you could you could run 300 simultaneous print jobs through that thing. Yeah. So the value add, and, and before we got cancelled in HP, what we tried to push to the management is, we are the printing platform. You know, move to Linux for your print servers, put Samba on it, yeah. and you have a platform that you can sell other people to write apps. Yeah. You, you, you know, beef up the box a little bit, get people to, to write apps that run on it, let them work as filters in the print process, and you have a platform, you know, just like anything else, it's like Android or whatever, that other people can write apps on. Um, and, you know, that way you will own, as soon as it leaves the Windows box, you will own the print process. Yeah. Uh, and, and you can make it really easy to print more pages, which is where the money is. And anyone who worked <coughs> with Windows printing at the time, it was torturous. torturous. Oh, it, 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 horrible, horrible. Completely undocumented, too. And in the end, they canned it and tried to replace it with a box running Windows. Um, okay. You know that would actually run embedded versions of Office, and the whole project was canned after a year because they couldn't make it work. Um, anyway, so your uh, your whole resume seems to be disasters. Yeah, oh, it, it, it's a litany of disasters until, until Google. Uh, everywhere I went, you could make money by shorting the stock. Everywhere, <laughs> like Jeremy's gone there, short the stock. <laughs> it's gonna tank. Yeah. <laughs> So, so, Google <laughs> no, well, not ex I was going to say except for Google, because I, I am, you know, I, I am such a minor carbuncle on the side of Google that, you yeah, know, yeah. I, even I can't drag him down. Um, Did you stay on at HP? Or, uh? Uh, so I, I stayed in HP for a while, but after they cancelled the project, I moved to Novell. Um, and um, so we did a, a lot of work. Novell at the time was pushing the SUSE desktop. Yeah. So we did a lot of work to make the Windows integration offline log on and, and all that kind of stuff work. And that, that was a lot of fun. And that, um, was, that was when you got uh, Active Directory integration? Yes. Stuff like that. Uh, well, we, we had it before, but we, re we really made it work oh. at that point. You could do offline log on. You could do, you could take, you could do with a SUSE Linux box exactly what you could with a Windows um, you know, uh, laptop. But you still needed a, a domain controller? Yes, we still didn't have the domain controller. Um, so yeah, I mean that that was spent a lot of uh, time on that, and then you know eventually I left after the the deal with Microsoft, which you know as is on the historical record I was not too chuffed with really. Um, you got criticised for that, but you, you that you took too long to uh, you stayed at Novell too long after it, and then you moved to Google, and people were saying that it was uh, you know you should have moved earlier or something. What do you say to those people? Did I? <laughs> okay, good answer. <laughs> I never heard anyone say that before. Look at you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it was me. Who said it. Oh, fair enough. No, I, I mean, I, I stayed at Novell and argued against it. I mean, I, I saw an original uh, version of the agreement before it was public, and, you know, my response to the lawyers was tell me why this isn't a GPL violation and the response I got back was please delete all copies of the agreement that you've got <laughs> okay, <very laughs> which good. I did you know uh, and so one, once that happened basically I, I moved straight away so what was know. the 
what was so grievous about the thing? Um, it, essentially, it was a way to try and get around um, GPOV2 by instead of calling it a patent license, they called it a covenant not to sue. Okay. So it was it was essentially rearranging the deck chairs on the you know. Yeah. Um, so that it, it, it was called something else than what it was. It was really a patent license agreement. And the whole point of GPL was that, you know, that you essentially, you, you can't do side patent agreements that violate the GPL. And, and that's very explicit in GPL v3. How do you think that has worked out for Nobel? Um, I, I don't, I mean, to be honest, I don't think it hurt them. I think it gained them a lot of credibility with companies who found that sort of thing important. I don't think it helped them that much, yeah. um, you know. Um, so, you know, I, I, I still have. There's still some great Samity members at Naval. I still, I, I still, you know, Greg Crow Hartman's that was at Naval. Maybe still is. And it, and it was seconded to the Linux Foundation. But yeah, no, I, 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 I get on with Naval fine. I, I don't have any, any, you know, long-standing issues with. And that. then it was just throw your CV at Google and they hired you. No, no, oh, no, 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 that's, that's not how Google works, that's, if you've ever been for a Google yes, interview, you'll know, yes. you have, okay, so no, so you know that's not how Google works, no, I did a Google interview, just like everybody else does, and yes, that's not easy, okay. it's not easy, so, how have, you, how have you found it so far, working for Google, is nice, I love it, yeah. I mean, it, it's, the best way to describe Google is, I once worked at Manchester University, and, um, you know, <laughs> I remember one of the questions that the guy, one of the things that the guy said to me when he was going to offer me the job, he said, you do realise you're going to have to come into work every day. <laughs> I was like, yes, yes. I, I, it's called working. It's called working. I was expecting that. And the guy said, because, he said, the last guy who had your job, he only came in three days a week. And that's not going to be acceptable. <laughs> So, so d that, that's not to say that you only come in three days a week at Google, but, but what I'm saying is how, how easy uh, the, the environment was at Manchester University. Well, work at Google, because I enjoy what I do, I mean, it's not that I don't have any pressure, but I, I do, and, and so do a lot of engineers at Google, but it, it, it's hard to call it work. Yeah, getting paid for your hobby. Yeah, it, yeah, it's 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 actually it's fun. Yeah, uh, and that's you know you can't ask for a better job than being paid to do what you probably would be doing even if they weren't paying you. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It, it, it. So so even though yes, you know I, I put in the hours. You know I, I won't say anyone at Google doesn't work hard, but everybody works hard. But it reminds me of being at a university. It reminds me of being at a campus because people are there doing stuff that they love in an environment that is designed to make it fun okay and it, it's 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 great it's yeah it's the best job i ever had basically cool um one thing i think which earned you a lot of respect is the um whole microsoft versus the eu thing and uh, getting the whole documentation for for Microsoft products released and the whole fines for, for Microsoft. I think your team were involved in that whole... Uh, can you tell us that story? Well, we were the only ones that couldn't get bought out. Because yeah. <laughs> we didn't own the code. So what was, what was the whole deal? Uh, well, I, I, so, so Sun originally bought a complaint against Microsoft because... 
long, long story, many, many years previously, I'd, I'd, I'd had dinner with a Sun VP trying to say, look, you guys should throw in your lot with Samba, you should work with us, you know. Uh, and he, he said, that's very interesting. And then he went away and he bought a product from AT&T called Advanced Server for Unix, yeah. which was basically a port of the Windows code. He said, right, well, that's going to be our Windows integration strategy. Yeah. So as soon as Sun licensed that from AT&T, Microsoft pulled the license from AT&T and said, we will not give you any further updates to the Active Directory stuff. Okay. Uh, and then AT&T sued them. because I know because AT&T asked me to be an expert witness. And then um, Microsoft said to AT&T, here's $350 million, go away. Yeah. Uh, and leaving Sun in the lurch. So Sun complained to the EU. Yeah. Uh, and then a boatload of other competitors, Novell was one, whatever, everybody joined in. And um, so... Samba was was you know the the Samba team represented by the Free Software Foundation was another one of the complainers, and at the end of the thing I think we were the only one left, left <laughs> because because it was like you know son oh here's two billion dollars go away yeah, yeah. Neville here's here's your agreement you know uh, and and all of you know slowly but surely all of the smart ones took the money and ran. <laughs> You're not yourself in the grid last year. No, I know, it, it's true, but you know, what would you do if someone offered you a billion dollars? You'd probably think about it, right? Anyway, so... Uh, uh, Did uh, you get offered money? No, we, we didn't. Damn it. No, I, well, so, so my... The, the only thing I thought of, it would be hilarious if they offered us money if we turned around and donated it to the Free Software Foundation. So having Microsoft basically pay, pay, for pay FSF a billion dollars or something <laughs> to go away and develop software would be hilarious. Uh, but we never got offered money because I, I think I think they knew that you know we couldn't accept it anyway. It's not. Uh, uh, that that reminds me of a story from the early days when when Tridge, when you know PC NFS vendors weren't doing so well because Samba was doing pretty well, and and one of them turned to Tridge and offered him forty million dollars. Said, "Can we buy Samba from you for forty million? Yeah. That was before they, yeah. people even knew what the GPL was. Yeah. And, um, you know. Uh, so, so we don't own the code, and this this is one of the things I'm talking about where we only accepted personal copyright. So the code is owned by the individual engineers who put it in there, yeah. and that's great because it means we can't be corrupted because yeah. we don't own it. You know, you own your bit, plus I, I own my little bit, and other people own their little bits. But I, you know, you need forty I, I million for every I, single person who's ever. I can't take the money and run. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the great thing is, you know. I, I can't be tested in that way. Yeah. So I can make fun of, you know, I would have taken the money and run because I'll never know because I could never do that. Um, yeah. So why, why were you even interested? Well, I essentially what was happening was that because of the um, time, close time together of the Windows plant and the Windows server, um, and, and this was... I, I'm not... I'm not going to say that Microsoft did this deliberately. Uh, I don't think that they did. I think they considered a happy side effect of the way they were doing their engineering. That it was very difficult for anyone else to, to re-implement what they were doing. Yeah. And, and the, reason that, the reason that it happens that way is because they were using a complex suite of remote procedure core protocols. And they had a lot of legacy code to support. So, for instance, you make a call and it gives back an error, then it falls back to doing something else, and then it makes a call which gives a different error. And, and you see what I mean? You, you can't just implement the things on the wire. You have to know what the right, right error code is to make the clients do a different yeah, yeah. thing. And, and that's not done maliciously. That's, that's simply because 
when you run the code that's been auto-generated from the RPC mechanism, that's what you get. Yeah. And remember, because they have both client and server, and they don't, they didn't used to test against anyone else, then what you end up with is products that are so tightly bound together that it's impossible to substitute one of one or the other. And the although there was certain <coughs> things where it was suggested that you make make it deliberately, you know, Windows wasn't finished until the sample was broken. I I, I heard those rumors I, actually from some people I, I, I trust. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that was ever an official policy. I don't think. I mean, you know, maybe as much as the, the remember the Windows isn't done until uh, what was Novell's the, the you know Novell's broken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the early DOS. I, I don't. I really don't think it was deliberate policy. I think it was a side effect of the complexity. But what it meant was that you know we did we did a decent job, but we couldn't do a good enough job in order. Everyone else was being forced out of that market. Yeah. Um, so, from from their point of view, if if a server was connected to a client or a client was connected, <coughs> it would continue to it would try the high, the latest API and then fall back and fall back and fall back. So you have it's more an effect of backward compatibility than than a deliberate attempt to uh, lock out Samba. Would it? Yes, I think that's the case. Okay. And, and you know. Remember, because you control both client and server, it can be as complex as you like. Yeah. The the dance of interoperability can be can be. A, we produced a paper that in the EU case that was called Microsoft's Web of uh, Interconnected Protocols, where we tried to explain that it wasn't enough just to get one piece right. You had to get every single piece right, including the error mechanisms, in order to um, make things work together. But you were clear in the whole time <coughs> never to call that reverse engineering. Uh, network analysis. Yeah. So, so reverse engineering is something that we never had to do. Reverse engineering is when you take compiled code and you decompile it and you look at the assembly language. Uh, you know, you try and turn it back into C or C++. Yeah. We never did that. Um, we looked at what happened on the wire. And in, f in fact, so, so the, the really funny thing is when, um, after we were cooperating with Microsoft, and Microsoft and Samba have a really good relationship um, at the moment. So. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to dwell too much on on the murky and unpleasant past because it's kind of murky and unpleasant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, it's not, it's not how things are these days. Um, but one of the funny things that happened once we started collaborating and cooperating together, and remember, Microsoft fixed bugs in Windows now to make it work with Samba. Good. They have fixed client bugs to make it work with Samba. Active Directory and domain controllers. You, you can't get greater cooperation than Fair that. enough, yeah. Um, but back in the days when we were trying to, when we were first working with interoperability documents, um, what what Microsoft, what we found hard to communicate to them is, look, because they kept saying, well, this API does this on Windows. And we would say to them, you don't understand. We don't care about your APIs. We don't even know what your APIs are. Because <laughs> they, they described everything in terms of APIs that ran on the client or the server. And we said, you, you, you're completely at the wrong level. All we know is what's on the wire. How that's layered on the server is irrelevant to us. Uh -huh. You know, if, if we make a call and we see that error message, a certain error message coming back, 
We don't care whether it came from the NTFS layer or the NT-kernel layer or the, the SMB server layer. It's an error code we see on the wire. We have to know where, how to respond. Yes. Because a lot of the time we would ask the questions like, why do we get this error message back? And the, uh, and the SMB server guys would go, we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> we, we pass that down to NTFS and we just pass back what we get. You know, and the okay. API says this and we're like, look, we don't care about you. <laughs> so when, you know, when we, we now understand each other. And that, yeah. That's really good. It's like, okay. They, yeah, they, I think a lot of the, uh, a lot of the issues, you know, after they were forced to release the documentation, was that? Well, so so the interesting thing about the the quote being forced to release the documentation, Microsoft made a conscious decision to do it right. Yeah. They didn't just release the documentation that they were quotes forced to by the EU. They released everything. They essentially decided, I think, as a corporate decision that anything going on the wire that they produced, they would now document. So they, they did a 180 degree sea change. You know, in, in some ways, in, in some ways I can, I can just see them laughing because they essentially said, be careful what you ask for. You yeah. know, <laughs> here's, here's three million pages <laughs> of <laughs> closely typed documentation <laughs> that tell you exactly what we do and how we do it. Now go and implement that, you yeah. scumbags. You know, um, and in some ways that's, that's kind of what happened. Um, so yeah, they, they, they did the right thing. Yeah. They, they documented everything. They documented it as well as they could. You know, they, they have teams in China that do various work to make sure that the documentation is correct. So, so they have a team in China that takes the documentation and then tries to produce a product that does the same thing as Windows does with it. So, oh, okay. yeah, they, they really, yeah, they, they're, doing, they're doing the right thing on that. So. Just why is Google hiring a Samba team? What, what, or are you, is that a top secret Google project? Well, I, 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 I could tell you that, but then I have to kill you. That's okay. <laughs> I no, sorry. No, so Google does use Samba internally in various things. Okay. Um, so you know, I mean, it, it it's useful to them. Otherwise, they wouldn't hire me. That's kind of you know what you can say about it. I think. So, so and we were talking also about the. Um, but, well, I mean, but plus plus I do you know open source work. I'm in the open source program office. Uh, you know, I, I do work like, I, I mean, I'm not here for Samba. I'm not giving a Samba talk at this conference. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm here to help out with the Summer of Code. You're doing the junk. Yeah. Do you want to visit? No, no, no. I, I'm... Um, Belgian beer, <laughs> chocolates. Well, I'm not going to say no to those things, I admit that. But, hey, you know, I'm, I'm staff in the booth. I'm yeah, yeah. talking to attendees, you know. I'm, Walk in the walk. Help, the I'm helping out. Yeah, yes. So, is there is there anything else in this interview that I have not covered? Uh, I don't. I don't think so. Do you? What's the best thing about? Oh, about, oh yeah. Samba Four. Ah, Samba geez, Four yeah. is an Active Directory domain controller. This yes. is amazingly cool. Uh, it's only taken 12 years to do. Uh, <laughs> I mean, one of the reasons of that is there's so many moving parts. There's so many components. Um, so, um, yeah. Um, it came out um, last year. We are rapidly developing it. We're implementing new the new SMB3 protocol that Microsoft released. We're also improving the Active Directory domain controllers to allow Windows clients to fit into it better. Um, it's it's very cool. Uh, you should check it out. And is it stable at this point? Yes. And it does everything uh, standard Windows Active 
doesn't accept. doesn't do um, multi-domain um, for, multi-forest uh, uh, I can't remember um, I'm, I'm more of a file server guy so they doesn't do the multi-domain replication but that's something that's been worked on okay is there anything that you would have loved to have done in your life changed differently uh, joint cobalt maybe <laughs> no <laughs> I don't know <laughs> no I, I I have a pretty good time um, if I would so if I if I could do one decision again with the technology that we have now I would not use C for Samba Okay. I wouldn't use C++ either. I would use Google Go. Um, there are a bunch of talks from Go engine, Google Go engineers um, tomorrow, actually. I think there's an entire Go track, which I very much recommend that you and your listeners uh, look up at, uh, learn about. Uh, the website is golang, G-O-L-A-N-G dot org. So, <clears throat> I don't know whether you remember when Java came out. Yep. Um, Java was supposed to be C++ done right. Yeah. Um, Go is C done right. Yeah. As a C programmer, I look at Go and it's like, oh yeah, this, this is how it should be. So I'll give you an example. We had a horrible security hole to do with our DCRPC handling. Um, it's been in the code for, I think, over seven years. Okay. Nobody noticed it. We found it with an internal audit. So as far as we know, it's never been exploited, even though it was a root-level security hole. Yeah. But it's been in the code for seven years. It happened because of a subtraction. Simply subtracting one number from another. Yeah. And we got a range check wrong. Okay. That blew a hole in yeah. completely, uh, co completely compromised machine. One subtraction. The problem with C, and C is a wonderful language, I love it, I code in it every day. You have to be perfect, and you have to be perfect all the time. Yep. Nobody's perfect. Mm -hmm. Go doesn't have those problems. I really, really encourage um, your listeners to check out Go. Uh, it's just a superb language. I'm <clears throat> if I was doing Samba again, I would probably do it in Go, I think. Okay. Um, it, it's, yeah, it... it it doesn't have those problems, and yet it's still a systems programming language. So they're going to talk about it um, tomorrow. I say there's a bunch of talks, some of which talk about how Go is being used at Google okay. um, in production. So. Uh, all for the listeners, all those uh, I'll put links to those uh, recorded talks in the show notes. Oh, cool! Very, very nice, very yeah. nice. Yeah, I, I would, I would really recommend it. Anyone who's anyone who's used to doing C programming will look at it and go. Yes, this is what C++ should have been. Yeah. <laughs> There's none of that insanity. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm not that. Uh, I'm not a programmer. I just interview them for a living. It, look, it looks right. Yeah. It looks right. It looks beautiful. It looks clean. It looks elegant. It's you know, it, it, it's the right thing. I think it's okay. the right thing to use. So. And what do you do for your spare time if you have any? Um. Called Sam. Uh, well, I, 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 I have a, a an eight-year-old. <laughs> He takes up quite a bit of time. Um, you know, I, I do do some recreational Samba coding because it's still fun, you yeah, know? Yeah. It's still... I just don't get as much time as I used to. Um, so why is it recreational? Just stuff that you... You're told well, to do stuff at work, is it? Well, so, so I, I have stuff I have to do at work. I, and, and these days, Samba is a very, very professional product. Yeah. So no 
piece of code, no code change gets into Samba without two team engineer review, without, you know, it's not as bad as the Linux kernel you know, in terms of hostility, but people hammer at the code, they make sure it's right, they make sure it's beautiful, you know, it's done right, it's, it's professional programming work. So sometimes at the weekends it's just nice to sit down and write some, you know, write something new for fun. And then, all right, you're still going to go through the review process when you've done it, but, you know... The pressure is not... Yeah, yeah. I, it's like, some last one I did was some stupid bug where uh, old DOS clients, and I'm talking DOS here, pre-Windows, yeah. right? When we moved to 64-bit machines, old DOS clients stopped working. And, you know, I'd known about that bug, and I knew what it was, and I hadn't... Cause DOS clients, who cares, right? Yeah. And I, you know, one weekend I just thought, oh, screw it, I'm going to fix this. This is going to be fun. I know what to do, you know. And, and it took me the weekend, but... And you know that somewhere in some factory somewhere, somebody is going, yes, that's, that's right. Oh, oh, yeah. No, I, I, I knew the poor customer. And they were like, oh, thank God. Oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> You know, I, I know. You know, nobody could nobody could make anybody do that. I was, yeah. I was done purely for fun. Yes. You know, if you're ever in the line for widgets, called me off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, we mentioned you mentioned earlier about the cloud. Nobody keeps nobody keeps anything now anymore. Everything's in the cloud. So obviously, we have no need for Samba anymore. Probably true. Um, I, I'm not going to argue. Um, I gave a talk at the SNEA Storage Network Industry Association about five years ago, saying. You know the death of SMB, uh, and and things are moving to the cloud, and the um, essentially application. Nobody writes application protocols that depend on precise local semantics running remotely anymore. Yeah. If they do, they've written a bad program. Okay. So my my argument is that if anyone, if a student. You know Microsoft Access, you know, the yeah. way it has multiple accesses to the database using file locking locally. If a student came up with the design for Microsoft Access these days, you'd fail them. Because that's not how we do things now. And, you know, in some ways, that's, that's true. Um, Samba essentially is implementing a legacy protocol. SMB3 has some very nice and interesting features that will extend its life. But eventually... People, and you see this with Amazon, you see this with Google, you see this, you know, with many of those apps. They, they're writing their own custom protocols to do exactly what they need and no more against clouds, you know, against the storage that they're using. They're just not using perfect file semantics on a LAN anymore. So, you know, in some ways, yes, Samba is legacy, at least the, the file sharing part of it. Probably not the Active Directory piece. Um, I still find it fun. I still think it's an interesting topic, um, but I'm I'm not I'm not going to stand there and say, oh no, worse, you know. Some die to the death. Yeah, I, I I still have fun with it. Um, you know, maybe eventually we'll, we'll move on to something else. Uh, but I mean, even as a legacy technology, it's going to be around a long time. Um, you know, these things take a long time to move. So. You, um, you're a very outspoken proponent of the GPL v3. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I think it's a better license than, than V2. I actually have a talk uh, that you can link to, and I can't remember that URL, uh, as to why GPLv3 is a better license. Uh, and, and this is the funny thing um, that, that people don't understand. GPLv3 is actually a better license for working with proprietary software than GPLv2. It actually is... E if you want to link GPL and proprietary software... GPLv3 is a license that you want your GPL code to be under. Yeah. 
um, and there's many reasons for that. You can read them in, in, in my talk. Um, the only the only thing that um, GPLv3 really stops you from doing is locking things down tight with DRM. So if you want to use DRM, GPLv3 is a nightmare. You, it's not a license for you. But then again, you know, screw them. I don't care about DRM. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want DRM to go away. So I don't really care that it's hard to use with DRM. But for everything else, GPLv3 is a lot easier to use and to link with proprietary software. We have many um, vendors who are selling legacy you know legacy file sharing samba to cloud gateway products right and they're much happier with gplv3 because it's actually easier to use with their proprietary products so uh, and and like i say you need you need to read the i do a whole talk on it um for yeah, exactly why i'll put a link in um, i'll put the link into that so you have an eight-year-old how do you or do you bother entertaining or trying to get uh, your eight-year-old into tech or do you push that, or how how do you hack an eight-year-old? Um, well, I, I I don't really. I let him. I, I I show him interesting things and let him play with what he wants. So so he loves Lego, you know. So right now we're doing a lot of Lego. Um, so I, I I don't I don't think you can make an eight-year-old yeah. interested in anything. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes so, certainly not computers, you know. Um, but the funny thing is, I think he will grow up in a world where desktop PCs are for really old people. Uh, one of the funniest things I, I remember seeing, and this was when he was much younger, when he was about four or five, was, you know, we sat there in front of the desktop PC to play a game or whatever, and he started touching the screen. Because, yeah. why wouldn't you? Course, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then he oh, oh, yeah, I'm like, no, you have to use it. You know, oh, a mouse. Yeah, it, it really was like the Scotty scene with yeah, computer. Yeah. Oh, that's quaint. How we used to do it. So that that's that's a change that's really coming. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, no, I don't. I don't think you can. I, I think I, you know, as long as they're having fun, then they're learning. Right. I don't think we have anything else to cover in this interview. All right. So uh, thank you very much uh, for um, the talk. And uh, tune in tomorrow for another exciting episode of Hacker Public Radio. <laughs> you have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All Binrev projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license.